0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see we could not, but she did. And in
2: the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now
3: with Game Pass. Welcome,
1: welcome, 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 welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: 64% of Canadians support mandatory COVID-19 vaccination. That's 64% of Canadians, two-thirds, supporting mandatory vaccination darrell bricker is the president and ceo of ipsos public affairs they did the polling for global news darrell's also the author of next you know what i say that is the book that belongs in every household in this country if you're staying home if you're keeping to yourself during this COVID time read next by Daryl bricker it'll tell you what's going to happen next in this country darrell thank you for the time so we have 64 percent two-thirds of the population of this country um, leaning in favor of mandatory vaccination. Is that number climbing?
4: Yeah, it's up about five points since the last time we asked it in November. But what's really interesting, right, is that when we ask people, would you line up for a vaccine tomorrow? That's now 74% of Canadians, which is up 20 points wow. since the last time that we asked it in November. So we're, it's an interesting situation where the gap between the people who would say that we need mandatory vaccines and people who are already going to do it anymore anyway. That number of people is actually higher than the, the percentage that support mandatory vaccines.
0: Yeah, and it's tough to get 74% of Canadians to agree on anything. It would be tough to get 74% of Canadians to agree that today is Saturday.
4: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And and that number continues to climb. And the reason it's going to continue to climb is that as long as the experience of that people who have been the, the first in line to get vaccines continues to be positive more and more people are going to come on side. And when you really look at the the actual hardcore group of people who say, you know, not under any, any circumstances am I going to get a vaccine, it's, it's around 10% of the population.
0: Now, now men are more willing, I see from the polling that you've done at Ipsos for Global News, mm-hmm. men are more willing than women to take the vaccine without hesitation. Why is that?
4: When it comes to anything related to risk, men are always a little bit more willing to try something new. So, for example, if you, uh, you ask them... Uh, you know, every cause that you can have, you know, for taking risk um, in your life that could shorten your life, men are more willing to do it than women. Uh, And when it comes to uh, things like health care, they tend not to care as much about what the potential uh, negative side effects are going to be. So uh, I I wasn't surprised when I saw that number.
0: Another number that I found very interesting is uh, the percentage of Canadians who actually believe the vaccine will slow the spread of COVID. That number was lower than I thought it would be.
4: Yeah, and and the reason is because they haven't seen it actually have the effect. And this is something that's really interesting that's happening out there in the environment right now, Roy, is that people are watching the news more than they used to. They're paying really close attention to what's going on, particularly as it pertains uh, to COVID-19. And if they all of a sudden start to see news stories that show that the numbers are coming back down rather than going up, then they'll probably start attributing that to a certain extent to people becoming vaccinated. And that's when you'll see those numbers move in the other direction.
0: Okay, so looking at another short paragraph here in the Global News story, according to the Ipsos survey, which was conducted earlier this month, 13% think their turn will come by the September target, which Justin Trudeau talks about repeatedly, while 19% believe they'll have access to the vaccine before the end of March, and 18% of Canadians think they'll not be eligible to receive the vaccine this year. So all those three numbers are below 20%. Yeah,
4: and when you start to add them up, though, it starts to look more like around a majority of Canadians are thinking that they're going to get access to the vaccine some time around June. Now, the government has said that, um, obviously, we're all going to be vaccinated uh, by sometime in the fall. So they've kind of arbitrarily set that date as being the acceptable date. And particularly when people were a little more reluctant about taking the vaccine, that, that was probably acceptable. But now that people are starting to see the success, they're, they're actually seeing the marker for how fast uh, a population can be vaccinated, being set by other countries, that they'll start to adjust their expectations. So what I'm expecting to see is that, that that fall date will become more difficult to defend for the government, and it, it could become problematic for them.
0: Now, that's what you and I have talked about in the past. You've told me that over the last couple of weeks, that if the government doesn't meet its own projections, which it trumpets loudly, and between 7 and 8 million Canadians are standing with sleeve rolled up, ready for to be vaccinated, if they don't meet that September uh, promise, it's going to be really problematic for them.
4: Yeah, especially that that 7 to 8 million number is now, if we take that 72% number, has now climbed up something more than you know, 25 million Canadians. Yeah, yeah. So it's really jumped.
0: So uh, 12%, though, Daryl, you find uh, still say they will not be vaccinated. Does that surprise you?
4: Yeah, that's uh, and I'm putting the number probably closer to about 1 in 10 uh, because there are some people among that 12 that probably will get peeled off as we see more success with, with vaccines. But no, I mean... I, uh, You know, I'm, from the very beginning on this, looking at the numbers, uh, I think that there has been an inordinate amount of obsession, particularly among people in the media, uh, people in, in the, uh, you know, the academic community, in the government community, the public sector community, about, you know, uh, anti, for want of a better term, anti-vaxxers, that, um, uh, that there was a huge, you know, groundswell of, of opposition to vaccination. It was never big. There was a lot of people who were conditional because they needed to see some early experience that would be successful, and they would come on. But that true anti-vaxxer crowd is actually quite small and is not going to drive this issue.
0: Okay. Small but vocal.
4: Small but vocal. And, you know, small but vocal groups are, you know, they're they're not to be ignored, but 90% of the population actually feels another way. And 90% vaccination for anything these days is way beyond what we normally have for vaccination. Yeah. There are many things that are being done
0: or being suggested by governments, and uh, increasingly the question is, do they have the right to do that? Can they constitutionally do that? Are they in violation of the charter? Do emergency situations provide them the opportunity and the right to make the decisions they're making? We've talked uh, about this with Michael Bryant, the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and during the first wave of the pandemic, Mr. Bryant told us uh, very early on, that uh, one of his concerns is that it may become more easy or will become more easy for politicians to uh, pass legislation that might compromise our rights as they go along. The first time is more difficult than the second time. So let's talk to the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association about the stay-at-home orders, about curfews, about British Columbia's possible travel interprovincial or interprovincial travel restrictions, mandatory vaccinations, and the like. Mr. Brian, good to have you back on the show. How are you?
1: Good to be here. Thanks.
0: So uh, let me start with this. We just talked to Daryl Bricker of Ipsos, and 64% of Canadians told Ipsos for Global News that they are now in favor of mandatory vaccination. Would you have, at the CCLA, would you have huge concerns if any government, federal or provincial, were to say, this is what we're going to do, it's going to be mandatory?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, we don't, we don't have any, uh, we've never mandated medical treatment, um, under, uh, Canadian law ever for anything. Um, and, uh, um, uh, except in circumstances where there's, um, due process in a hearing. So I've been at those hearings where, um, a judge decides whether or not, um, the circumstances are appropriate for somebody to receive mandatory treatment because uh, they're a danger to themselves and others, and uh, it's a serious hearing, and uh, that's for one person. To require um, uh, by law that the state gets to put a needle in your arm is uh, is That is extreme, you know. So, I, I, but you know, that said, I obviously understand what the point is of it. And um, and furthermore, um, you know, I think we were that 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 before one could even consider uh, that we need to see how many people actually um, uh, want to get vaccinated and do get vaccinated. And if it's anything like the other vaccinations that we have uh, in Canada, uh, we'll hit the herd immunity amount that we need to hit without much difficulty. We'll get yeah. to 80%, 90% of the population. And uh, and from a public health perspective, as I understand it, uh, that's what the science is trying to get at. It's not, it's more about um, getting to a certain point in, in achieving herd immunity than it is about getting 100% compliance. Mm-hmm.
0: And Mr. Bricker pointed out to us that uh, even though the news story indicates 64%, in the interim, it's gone to 72%. Canadians in favor of mandatory vaccination let me ask you for your thoughts and and you tweeted out on this as well the stay-at-home order um, which was put in place by the Ford government in Ontario the Quebec 8 p.m to 5 a.m curfew put in place by the Legault government and uh, you questioned if I remember your tweet correctly you questioned the legality of these moves did you do you have concerns and if so what are they
1: uh at, not, not with the orders per se. I think on paper they're fine, and the Ontario order is a better than the than the Quebec order. Um, I, for every law, we do the same thing. We ask ourselves two questions: Is it necessary, and is it proportionate? In the event that it impacts on a constitutional right, well, both these laws impact on the constitutional right to liberty, and uh, also affect things like uh, religious freedom. If it, if it denies worship. So in the case of both, we would say it's necessary, although with the Quebec curfew, one has to say, um, there is no evidence showing that most people get COVID at night. So why are you yeah. putting in place a curfew if you don't have evidence that people are getting curfew at night? Well, I think their answer to that would be, well, we don't have that, but what we're trying to do is get people at home more, and this does that. And so in that sense, it probably meets the necessity test, the curfew, and the, um, and the stay-at-home order. And then it really boils down to proportionality, and have they tried to carve out exceptions and, um, and, uh, and limit constitutional rights in a way that's proportionate? I think the answer is on paper, yes. So our concern actually with both Ontario and Quebec is not with uh, the law per se, it's how it's going to be enforced. And thus far, it seems that Ontario is trying to avoid overzealous policing and ticketing of people, whereas Quebec, uh, we're getting stories and we're encouraging people to go up on our website and report any what they feel a bad ticket is on a form that we've got uh, ready for people to fill out. We've got some stories of ticketing in, in Quebec, which isn't going to do anything to aid public uh, health all it's going to do is uh, heap fines on for example homeless people who can't even pay the fines
0: yeah so I was going to ask you what what is uh, is there one story in particular that stands out
1: well ticketing homeless people uh, stands ridiculous out. Um, uh, ticketing uh, somebody was received a ticket uh, they had a doctor's note and the note said the person had an appointment to go to a supervised injection site at 9 p.m. Now, I understand there may be some people who disagree with supervised injection sites. It's a harm reduction approach, and not everybody is a believer in it, but nevertheless, they had a doctor's note that allowed them to go there at 9 p.m., and the police officer tore up the note. Uh, uh, another instance in which um, police will pull someone over, this is in Quebec, uh, and then try and search the entire vehicle. Now that's under those circumstances, um, they're pulling them over for public health purposes, and then they do the search for uh, because they're really fishing around to see if there's uh, narcotics, uh, and that's a violation of their charter rights. So it it really comes down to, you know, whether or not the enforcement officers are really engaged in um, public health prevention. Or are they, you know, trying to rack up their ticket numbers? And mm. uh, the Canadian Association Chiefs of Police advice for these COVID offences in Quebec and Ontario and elsewhere across Canada is police and enforcement officers should be in, um, uh, educating the public first, warning the public second, and only as a matter of last resort ticketing them. In Quebec, they seem to be doing the reverse of that. And in Ontario, it seems as if, Um, they're taking that approach, and and the same applies in Western Canada. Um, Quebec and Eastern Canada just take a different approach. They seem to be ticketing everything. And our view is, based just on the stats and the science, is you actually can't ticket your way out of a pandemic. You need to build public trust and Mm -hmm. keep public trust in place, and it's not going to be tickets and deterrence that do the trick.
0: Having lived in Quebec for nine years recently, I can absolutely agree with you that ticketing everything is SOP there, standard operating procedure. Mm. And this not mm. it's not good at this time, no. because people are already fearful, people are already concerned. Let me ask you this: um, you, you know that the premier of British Columbia, Mr. Horgan, is uh, seems to be in favor of interprovincial travel restrictions, and is investigating whether or not he and his government have the right to proceed. What do you say?
1: That uh, uh, you know that uh, affects. A constitutional right. It's the mobility right. It's one of the reasons that we became a country in the first place is that we felt that we could do more together than we could apart as separate provinces and colonies. Uh, it's also under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So you know governments have to take it seriously. So you ask yourselves: Is it necessary? And then is there another way to do it? And to cut to the chase, uh, the way in which you make uh, it proportionate, I would have thought, is you you put in place a quarantine. Requirement. So, uh, if somebody comes into BC, they have to quarantine for a period of time. Uh, if that's not working, then I could understand a government looking at a travel ban. But uh, BC doesn't have such a thing. Uh, a provincial quarantine would be an example of a of a more proportionate way of restricting mobility rights. All right. uh, and um, so, and that, of course, presumes that you actually have a mobility problem. Do they really have that many people coming into BC that are causing infections to go up? And I don't know the answer to that question.
0: The, uh, the website is CCLA.org, right?
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. If, if people uh, want more information on what I've talked about, or they want to uh, tell us about a bad ticket, please go on to CCLA.org to scroll down a bit and you'll see the link to COVID, um, uh, to our COVID page. and, And there's a place there to, uh, to report your bad ticket to us.
0: Okay, Uh, I think we're realizing now, perhaps more than many other times, how important it is to have the Civil Liberties Association um, acting as watchdog for what's going on and enshrining, or at least defending the charter rights and constitutional rights of Canadians.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night.
0: He wrote an op ed in uh, the Spectator, Hamilton Spectator. And the headline is Carbon Tax Could Lead to Food Insecurity for Canadians. And uh, Professor Charlebois is the senior director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab and a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Uh, The professor has joined us on this program in the past. Professor Charlebois, thank you for coming back on the show.
4: My pleasure.
0: So I'm going to read just a couple of lines from the top of your op-ed and then ask you to comment. COVID-19 has had an impact on Canada's Food industry, but over time resilience will prevail. However, the federal government's pre-holiday announcement that it will increase the carbon tax to $170 per ton by 2030 will have a long-term impact on consumers. Climate change is a real and significant problem. We need to act quickly, and the carbon tax seems to provide a simple and fair solution. The Trudeau government is clearly committed to a carbon tax now. This tax is essentially aimed at penalizing polluters. It's a good idea in principle, but it's short-sighted in many ways. So, can we start with the farmers and how it's going to affect them?
3: Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's unknown for most people who live in cities. Um, farmers uh, are, are price takers. They don't really control much of anything uh, from a market perspective. And so when they're asked to uh, absorb more costs, it's always difficult for them to pass on any extra cost to, to the next level. Uh, in, in their case, it would be processing, uh, grain handling, et cetera. So they're, they're really stuck uh, when, you, when you understand their, their role within the supply chain. So uh, at $50 per metric tonne, uh, which is where we're going right now uh in twenty twenty two the uh the tax the carbon tax will will be set at fifty dollars a metric ton um the amount is is significant for farmers but f- for- city dwellers uh it's still i would say at a level uh where they would probably tell farmers to uh, pardon the, pardon the expression but suck it up uh because it is it is about climate change. It is about uh, uh, matching our, our commitment to uh, the Paris Agreement and, and so on and so forth. But before the holidays, uh, what really got me thinking is when the prime minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, announced, that was on December 10th, I believe, all of a sudden, uh, as a surprise, nobody was really ready for that, uh, he announced that, uh, that his government is committed to increase the carbon tax to $170 per metric ton by 2030. Now, to me, when I heard that, I would say that it changes a lot of things. It, can be, it becomes a completely, completely different organi- a conversation.
0: Yeah, and and you're right as well in in your op-ed, producers can't increase their prices. If we go beyond the farmers for a moment, producers, and they are, I guess, can't increase their prices even if production costs increase on the farm. So back to the farmers. They can't increase their prices because there's only so much that consumers can afford to pay. So it's catch-22, right?
3: That's right. Now, every year we publish... Canada's food price report with the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan, and the University of British Columbia. And this year, of course, we uh, released our study, I think it was two days before uh, the Prime Minister made its announcement on the carbon tax, and we were announcing to Canada that prices are going to go up 3 to 5% in 2021. And a lot of people, especially farmers, were telling us, well, it's it's because of the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very difficult to demonstrate beyond reasonable doubt that the carbon tax itself is actually going to impact food prices it could it could but it's hard to prove it's hard to demonstrate but hundred seventy dollars when all functions of the supply chain are going to be exposed to this tax at hundred seventy dollars it's very difficult at this point not to see how the carbon tax won't have an impact on food inflation eventually. $170 yeah. is, a, is a lot.
0: It is a lot. And you also pointed out in your study in December, and we talked to you at that time, that in the coming year, I think the amount, the, the extra that a Canadian family was going to be paying for food in 2021 was about $700, right? That's right.
3: Yeah. So, so now do we, do we add the percent.
0: carbon tax? I mean, I know it's $50 it's a metric ton now, but does that get added to the
3: $700? No. No, you see, it's it's a it's a hidden tax, really. Uh, yeah. it's, it, it all companies have to report and have to absorb this tax, whatever they do. Whether you're a farmer, a processor, a distributor, you have to really pay that tax. Now, eventually, uh, it'll catch it will catch up to consumers. Now, it, historically, not all extra costs are uh, uh, do impact consumers. Sometimes you'll see, say the minimum wage increase uh, across uh, a province, and it won't necessarily impact food prices at retail. Uh, It really depends. Uh, However, there are exceptions. For example, in Ontario a few years ago, if you remember, with the Wynn government, when they uh, they decided to increase the minimum wage to $15 overnight, or I believe it was $14 overnight, uh, an increase of 22%. Well, for the supply chain to absorb that was was very was almost impossible. So we did see an impact on food prices very immediately. Yeah. Uh, but it was absorbed uh, a few months later, and things stabilized. But the carbon tax is is going to stick around. It's going to stay there for a very long time.
0: And it affects so, so many sectors, does it not? So it's 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 that's inevitable. Right. That's going to drive prices up. So if I can take this to the back to the point of your of your of your op-ed and that is carbon tax could lead to food insecurity for Canadians. Those words, food insecurity for Canadians, will resonate.
3: Uh, Absolutely. Now, a lot of people probably are listening to us and say, well, this is the cost to save the environment. And it's true. I mean, at some point, uh, yeah, we want to make sure that, that we make our supply chain responsible. But think about uh, global markets, if we are to impose uh, to our farmers, processors, and everyone within the supply chain, uh, impose a tax of $170 per metric ton, but what about imported food?
1: You're so basically
3: exactly. making yeah, exactly. imported food more competitive, not less competitive, yeah. and they're not going to be exposed to a carbon tax. So, again, the carbon tax itself is, I think, a good idea. It's a simple idea. It can work, but... Uh, how it's being implemented, it's very dangerous for farmers and for consumers as well.
0: Yeah, and that's the spectrum, the consumer, Absolutely.
3: right, the Both producer and the consumer. continuum are going to be heavily penalized by carbon tax if Ottawa doesn't really look at this very seriously, assessing the impact.
0: And we're already heavily taxed. We already live in a national constituency. We keep repeating this, where we were told last October that forty-nine uh, percent of Canadians are within two hundred dollars of not being able to pay their monthly bills already. This was before COVID. So now, in That's the really, middle of the pandemic, Mr. Trudeau suddenly pulls this rabbit out of his hat, and uh, and, and says by twenty thirty, it's going to be one hundred and seventy dollars a metric ton. People start to plan for twenty thirty. People who are in business or in producing, they start to plan for twenty thirty in twenty
3: twenty. Yeah, two things are going are, are happening right now. One, as soon as you talk about the carbon tax most people's eyes glaze over. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not really an interesting topic, and most people don't understand how it works. Second, right now, if you listen to uh, the media, it's all about the vaccine. It's all about COVID. And so it got lost into the noise, really, and that's why most people aren't necessarily aware of what's happening with the carbon tax.
0: Do you think that was planned?
3: (laughs) 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 I... I think the Liberals uh, have smart people working for the party. I I assume that they know exactly what they're doing. And uh, I I would put $2 on the table uh, and bet that there's going to be an election in the spring. So I'm not taking that bet. I would bet $2 on that. I'm not taking the bet. (laughs) Not a chance.
0: I almost like talking to our next guest because I have... As we've said many times, huge respect for him as a professional, as an investigative journalist. He's one of the very best, and he's fearless, and he takes on issues and uh, organizations lots of people would uh, shy away from. They'd say, and I'll give this to somebody else, please. I'm talking about Sam Cooper, national online journalist, investigative with Global News, and Sam joins us on his Global News story this week, which is just incredible. It's like a, it's like a, again, it's like a James Bond movie that uh, that develops or a script that develops you, but it's real and it's going on in this country right now. The headline of the story is alleged RCMP mole accused of selling secrets to kingpin money launderer and terror financiers network. If that's not going to get to your attention. few things will. How are you, Sam?
2: Doing great. Thanks for having me, boy.
0: Yeah, it's always great to have you on the show. So let me start. So I worked my way through your story, and it really reads like a spy thriller. Um, let's go back to October 2014 in the beginning of your piece. Um, what happened on that in that month involving the USDEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, and Canadian intelligence leaders?
2: It was a uh, an amazing meeting really. And just as a bit of background, I, I have been getting into organized crime through casinos in British Columbia and slowly found out month by month that really it's so international, the level of the criminals involved. I started to develop sources around the world as I as I found out about this global network. So what happened in late 2014, the US Drug Enforcement Administration invited the RCMP among Canada's Five Eyes intelligence allies, down to Virginia, and they had an action plan. They wanted to target a man called Altaf Kanani, who is based in Pakistan and uh, really one of the world's worst and most powerful criminals, estimated to be laundering about $15 billion per year for uh, many terrorist organizations and many transnational drug cartels, especially based in China, Mexico, Colombia, and the Middle East. And uh, the DEA's uh, uh, thesis and plan was simple. At the highest levels of crime in the world, the terrorists and uh, organized crime, drug cartels work together in some ways and always often have, uh, very often have their money laundered together. So uh, to get to the point, the DEA wanted to go after Kanani because he was active around the world and especially, uh, very shockingly, in Canadian cities, such as Toronto and Montreal. And so the DA asked the RCMP to join this plan. Kanani was using currency trading shops in Toronto to launder drug cash, especially in Toronto and Montreal, and uh, move that money around the world for cartels and terrorists through a form of underground banking, an ancient form known as Hawala.
0: Yeah, and Canada was, as you're right, becoming a major funding source for Hezbollah, which is designated as a foreign terrorist organization by this this country. Sam, when you talk about uh, laundering $15 billion in a year, that's $15,000 million a year laundering it. There must be very few individuals, very few organizations that have the criminal capacity to do that.
2: Exactly right. Uh, For the U.S. government, uh, who have uh, studied these uh, global super criminals uh, for decades, uh, they believed probably only about five people in the world were laundering, had the organizations that were laundering that amount of money. And to do that, as one of my sources said, you basically have to have the reach of a big five Canadian bank. You have to be uh, tied into banks around the world, and you have to have that ability. To collect drug cash uh, from from Western cities, really where the big drug markets are, and move the cash wherever the uh, drug cartels or the terrorists want you to move it. And so Altaf Khanani, uh, a, from a list of about 150 bad guys that the the U.S. government believed that the Five Eyes should be targeting, he was up there in that top five. And again, very active in ways that 99% of Canadians or more than that would have no idea. Very active. In some uh, forms of banking, underground banking in Canada.
0: Yeah. Now there was a third angle in this triangle, which turns out to be someone we've heard a fair bit about recently in Canada, although we may not know by and large most of us what role he plays or roles he played, and that's still being an investigated and found out. And you'll be the first one to know, I'm sure. But uh, this is Cameron Ortis, who had his his own interest in Canada. Talk to us about that, please.
2: That's right. Cameron Ortiz, the, the alleged RCMP mole, uh, another, another story, uh, a spy story that I, I believe shocks Canadians. And if they're not shocked, uh, they need to be jolted somehow. Uh, the allegations against Ortiz are about nine national security charges shrouded in secrecy. Uh, what we at Global News did in this story, this, this case against Mr. Ortiz has been uh, sitting there for about a year. We found out the nature of the charges against him. The most serious ones involved this Altaf Kanani network. Uh, a little background on on Ortis. He's a a graduate of the UBC. He's an academic, uh, sorry, University of British Columbia. An academic that rose like a rocket in RCMP intelligence, just based on really his brilliance. Uh, he had a groundbreaking thesis on the connection between cyber criminals, states, and organized crime. And guess what? It looks like he exploited, you know, his his world-leading knowledge on those connections and was looking for a way to profit. And so what my story really did in uh, this week was explain the nature of the charges where the RCMP and the DEA were targeting Kanani and his currency traders in Toronto. Ortis was a high-level intelligence official. And according to the the charges, uh, he leaked the RCMP's plans targeting Canani and these massive, you know, uh, money laundering networks in Toronto and Montreal. And so uh, this would be my comment, but you really cannot imagine a more serious uh, allegation of corruption and compromise if you're a Canadian official selling secrets to the, one of the world's biggest money launderers and pair financiers with uh, very strong links to Hezbollah, uh, an organization involved in moving drugs around the world, very close to the Iranian, uh, people would call the brutal I- Iranian regime, and very growing in power in in Canada. And you know, it, it's alleged that Ordis was trying to help this organization.
3: Yeah,
0: it's it's just amazing because, you know, cliche notwithstanding, he was playing both ends against the middle, right?
2: Based on to so his what personal it, benefit. Exactly. We don't. We we don't. Uh, we don't know what the canada's prosecutors are going to allege about motives but what i have found through talking to confidential sources is that the motive seems to have been profit he was seeking allegedly big money from targets of the rcmp and uh, it, it seems to get worse than that because canada of course is sharing intelligence with our trusted allies to go after these super criminals and uh, Ortiz uh, betraying, allegedly, uh, yeah. Canada's allies and selling this intelligence for his own profit. And we, I want to say that we've contacted uh, Mr. Ortiz's lawyer a number of times trying to get any comment for this story about the detailed allegations we're reporting on. There was no response, and uh, the allegations haven't been proven in court.
0: Jim sends an email uh, to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Roy, who's going to play Sam in the movie?
2: Regards,
0: Jim. Sam Cooper, of course, is who Jim is re- re- referencing. National online journalist, investigative global news. Sam, I thought uh, I-, I answered. Keanu Reeves could play
1: you.
2: <laughs> Matt Damon. Um, well, <laughs> Matt Damon, sure, yeah. Lendon, Whatever you like. I, I really, I, I, I do appreciate that that comment. I. I am working on a book. I'm going to break the news to you today, Roy. So uh, I think it's a book that's important for Canadians and the world, really. I'm looking at connections between organized crime and and hostile states. So stay tuned.
0: Oh, I can't wait! I really can't wait. You have to give me the first interview.
2: <laughs> let's work on that.
0: Okay, let's work on that. Okay, Sam Cooper is well. The same. He really is amazing. The uh, the. You are fearless in your reporting, and that's, uh, that's a very courageous endeavor because you tend to upset people with certain... You know, those of us who... Uh, I don't do it as much as I used to, but we tend to upset people at times, and uh, threats are not entirely uh, uncommon when you annoy people who have a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of anger. So I'm not suggesting that's happened to you, but I, know, I would imagine there are certain people in Beijing who aren't too happy with you. Sam, so Kanani was arrested... Ortiz is arrested. Do we know what damage was done to Canada by Ortiz in this entire scheme?
2: Well, I talked to someone uh, in the United States that that should know very well. Uh, Of course, I can't name the person. This story is so sensitive. It's still before the courts. But uh, the person said that uh, knowing the Kanani investigation and how well the United States and Australia did by sharing intelligence and figuring out this network and trying to get drugs off the street, trying to stop guns from being moved around the world. This person said that uh, people should be shocked and, and should say, what's alleged against Ortis? uh If proven, this can never happen again in Canada because it's already hurt the national security of the five eyes because uh, there's a freeze to some extent, on that intelligence that's being shared to go after these super criminals that are so active uh, in, in the cities that we live in. And so the damage is done. May, there, there's no question. And beyond that, uh, another cliche here, the tip of the iceberg, uh, I can tell you that Canada is still trying to assess how much information could have been leaked since 2007 when this uh, brilliant young academic joined the RCMP. And uh, we have nine charges so far. I can tell you that Iran, uh, Iran is not the only country where, where uh, Mr. Ordis might have forged unsavory ties with criminals. That is Iran, Pakistan, uh, super criminals involved with uh, cartels in Canada.
0: Well, let me we just go back to what you said at the beginning. This Altaf Khanani and his organization in Pakistan—they laundered fifteen billion dollars a year. So they took fifteen billion criminal do- dollars and laundered them through their various means and their underground banking system, uh, that's hundreds or maybe thousands of years old, and uh, brought it out clean of the other uh, the other side. So what a, what? A, what a story. Sam, we have three minutes. And uh, with all of this, the news now about the delays as far as Pfizer vaccine rollout is concerned, uh, you did a, such an incredible job uh, with your investigative work on the CanSino deal. Mr. Trudeau signed that in April of last year. By August, we had China saying, we're out of this, and they turned their backs on Canada. Uh, what's, what do we need to remember about, about that particular situation?
2: Well, we need to remember that Canada, for some reason, uh, placed a a big bet on China and cooperation with China in developing a vaccine. Uh, In some ways, it might not have looked like a bad idea. This company in China, CanSino, was built by uh, brilliant uh, Chinese doctors and, and, uh, and scientists trained in Canada with a lot of links in Canada. And and so it would have seemed that they'd be comfortable working with Canadian doctors and scientists to develop the CanSino vaccine, which was based upon Canadian uh, technology. Canada made a deal to share that technology. And for some reason, uh, early, early uh, in the spring, it seemed things started to go wrong. And China did not want to ship the promised vaccine that was developed to Canada. What my latest story showed was Actually, some of this problem probably uh, could have been, could have been uh, foreseen if people were listening to intelligence, if people were looking ahead, they'd know that the scientists at CanSino are actually connected to uh, Chinese talent recruiting programs, which are said to be used by the Chinese Communist Party to suck technology out of the West. It's called the Thousand Talents Plan, and uh, my story showed these direct links uh, from these uh, Sino executives. And I, I want to say that I reached out to Camp Sino asking for comments about their ties to this plan, which is now really under attack by Western intelligence agencies. We didn't get a response. And we really, I would like to hear their side of the story. But the deal uh, in hindsight looks horrible. And as I said, if you're looking uh, ahead, I think Canadian bureaucrats and leaders probably could have made their bets in better places than China and CanSino biologics.
0: Yeah, given the the relationship or the lack of a relationship that exists and existed even last year between this country and China with the Chinese ambassadors to Canada constantly attacking us and using language that was decidedly undiplomatic, uh, we had other options, other choices than CanSino, but... The deal was made, and the deal fell through, and here we are struggling along uh, sort of in the middle of the pack as far as vaccine development, or at least vaccine distribution is concerned. Sam, thank you so much for the time. Always really appreciate speaking with you. Thanks for the scoop on the book. Can't wait.
3: Thanks, Ray.
0: All the best. Sam Cooper and uh, at Scooper Cooper is, uh, is Sam's handle on Twitter, at Scooper Cooper. He truly is one of the very, very best. He's unique fearless reporter and uh, just is able to explain situations that develop the most complex of situations in manners that even i can understand and the uh, story that sam has on global news uh, this week uh, this one we were talking to him about you can just uh, google alleged rcmp mole if you just use those words you'll find it but the full title is alleged rcmp mole accused of selling secrets to kingpin money launderer and terror financiers network